It's uh, it's good to be here again. This uh, this morning it was interesting hearing what Barry was saying during that time before communion, um, reminding us of really how outrageously extravagant God has been towards us, that he has made a way for us to be forgiven. So the question comes, how do we respond to that? Well, there's a lot of responses that we should have, um, but one of those we'll take a look at this morning. Uh, and we're going to take a look at the first eight verses of First Corinthians. And in a nutshell, the topic is our attitudes towards each other, and specifically forgiveness. So if you don't like what I have to say, you'll just have to, you get it. So to give a little context, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's likely his second letter to them. But the important point to note is that in chapter one, Paul says it is written both to them and also to all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. So that means it is written to you and to me as well. And this church in Corinth was born and is, is actually now growing up in a crazy culture where sin was accepted and even encouraged. There were idols aplenty, sexual immorality and drunkenness. Yet out of this, the Lord was saving people. And it seems, in fact, this was an ideal place to plant a church. And remember, Jesus said he was not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's helpful to know because that's very much like the world around us today. So as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's writing to us, it's really a very similar situation that we find ourselves in. And just like then, today it's still important that there is a difference between the world and the church. We cannot compromise. We cannot be inclusive of sin. We have to stick to what the Bible says. But in the end, that means there has to be a difference. And that difference is in you and in I, and between you and I. And as we study this, in fact, as we study any part of the Bible, we need to remember it is there for us, for our benefit, but not simply as some sort of academic exercise or intellectual information. That's what it's not there for, but rather it's there to change us and to change our lives, and to change even our viewpoints, perhaps. In the previous chapter in this letter, uh, Paul was addressing a specific case of sexual sin in the church, and one of those persons in the church was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul picks up on this and deals with that situation. But before saying what should be done in that specific case, Paul rebukes. That is, he corrects the church that they have failed to deal with it. That they've failed to deal with the problem in the church. And actually, that means that the church have failed to help that person, likely to pray for them, to instruct them, to correct them. And they should have done something about that. But now here, in chapter 6, these first eight verses, we see almost the opposite. That here, the church is creating a problem by dealing with something in the wrong way. That is, they're doing something now, but they're going about it in the wrong way. And I find the more that I look at Scripture, the more I look at the Bible, there's clearly right and wrong, of course. But also when it comes to our attitude, to our conduct, how we deal with right and wrong, it's often that middle ground is where we should be. You know, we shouldn't be like a, a Pharisee criticizing from lofty heights as if we had not sinned ourselves. But also not so accepting of sin 
that there's no difference between Christians and unbelievers. So we read in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? And Paul says here, dare any of you. He's not daring them. He's, he's not kind of goading them into doing something here. Rather, he's saying, how dare you? How dare you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unjust and not before the saints? How dare you take another Christian to court before the unjust, before those that are not justified? Essentially, non-Christians, those that are not living to a biblical standard. And later in this chapter, in verse 9 uh, onwards, Paul actually explains what he means by the unjust, what their lifestyles may be like. But the point here in this verse is why are you not resolving this amongst yourselves? And he continues, he says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world should be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So he says, do you not know? And he actually uses this phrase, um, this kind of rhetorical question, do you not know or, or know you not? six times through this chapter in verses 2, 3, 9, 15, 16, and 19. So we look at just two of those this morning. But here, Paul's not really questioning what they know as if he's not sure, but he's making a point that they do know, and he's reminding them of what they know. And for sure, we don't have all the details on how this will work out, on, on how we will judge the world, but this being the case, Paul is saying, surely you should be able to judge rightly among yourselves here and now without the need for civil courts. And he says the smallest matters. You know, we're not judging to life and death. We're dealing with attitudes, with right and wrong amongst believers. And at the end of the day, there are just two options. Fight each other or behave like Christians. And in this example, in the church here, there's a lack of love. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm told that Christians do not love each other. Very sorry if that be true, but I doubt it. For rather, I suspect that those that don't love each other are not Christians. I'll say that again, because that's cutting. It says, I'm told that Christians do not love each other. Very sorry if that be true, but I doubt it. But rather, I suspect that those that do not love each other are not Christians. When you hear that, when you read it, I can feel harsh. Is it harsh? Well, it's easy to think so, but I think in this case, Mr. Spurgeon has got it spot on because we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he that loves not knows not God, for God is love. And we'll come back to that verse later. Now, if there is any fighting or bickering going on continually, then it's healthy to question where you stand. And I'm not saying you need to be continually questioning your salvation, but if someone in any church is continually causing issues or moving from church to church causing issues, they do need to consider where they stand. Paul carries on in verse 4 and says, If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, so you have issues, you have matters that need resolving in the church, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. What Paul's saying here is, look, someone who has been a Christian for five minutes should be able to tell you what to do here. You know, you don't need to have been a Christian for a long time to resolve a simple matter when two people are arguing and they shouldn't be. The challenge, of course, is that wisdom and age are not necessarily linked. 
know, in any church, there can be mature children or childish adults. You know, that's true in any part of life, you know, whether that be uh, in our, our jobs or in our homes or in our churches. But in the church, this can be the case spiritually too. That there are those that can have been at the same church for years with the biggest Bible and the most number of Christian stickers listening to Christian music and having the right mugs and T-shirts and stickers and fridge magnets. But they're the worst example of a Christian that we know. Now, that's not saying those things are wrong. I have an issue with fridge magnets. Um, but the point being is those things don't make us a Christian. And Jesus didn't instruct us to go and buy fridge magnets. He told us how we should live. In other words... Paul is saying here, don't be a baby. Grow up and act like a Christian should. And Paul says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. It's like Paul saying, come on. And you can sense Paul's frustration here. Saying, you know, is there not one person in the church who can do this? If not, that's to your shame. You know, Paul is not looking for a professional. Not saying you need a counsellor who can help resolve these matters. No, he's saying you just need someone with wisdom, with godly wisdom. Not the wisdom of this world, because we already know, including from earlier in this letter, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And that's not to say that there are some cases in churches that are very hard to deal with, ones that require a great deal of wisdom. But generally speaking, you just need to be wise in the Lord. And that's something that should come as we grow in the Lord for all of us. You know, we just need to hear his voice, to obey him, to act as God would have us do. You know, our aim as Christians should be to please God in everything that we do. And if we're all aiming for that, that's going to be the best for both parties involved in any difficult situation you know it's incredibly hard when you're in a difficult situation with someone who's not a Christian because you don't have the same foundation I've been teaching on 1 Corinthians for a few months uh, back at home and we're actually just a little bit ahead of this now in chapter 7 we've just been looking at what Paul says about marriage and there he's giving the guidelines saying that if you are looking to marry you should be marrying someone who is a Christian because it's very hard when you don't have the same foundation. But in this case here, where it is two people in a church that have a difficulty, married or not, because you have the same foundation, there is a way of resolving it. Always a way of resolving it, if you base everything on the Bible. Now Paul says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, the first problem Paul is saying here is that you should be able to resolve these issues. You know, these issues just shouldn't continue. But here is a second problem, that you are taking these issues before unbelievers, and in doing so, you are dishonoring the Lord. Rather than showing the virtues of exercising godly wisdom, you are relying on the wisdom of the world. You know, we see this today, don't we? You know, the media loves to jump all over this, Christians suing each other. You know, fights inside the church, but in public for all to see. And it's easy to think, oh, well, I would never get pulled into that. But it's all too easy online, you know, with social media, with forums, 
etc. to do this. It's so easy to take things the wrong way when they're sent by a text message or an email or we see something written in the comment section on a website or some online forum. You know, and very quickly it can be like the church is airing its dirty laundry, so to speak, for all to see. And you can only imagine that non-Christians look at that and think, why would I want to be part of a church? Now, this isn't a problem that is unique to Christians. Let's be clear on that. You know, anyone who has ever gone on the internet will realize that people get aggravated about some very silly things. Get too off topic, but I heard a comedian speaking the other day about YouTube comments and how he said, if you find just the most mundane video, and maybe a cat yawning or something, you put one word under it and say fake. He said, people lose their minds. And he said, people are starting to put comments and um, you know, saying, oh, cats yawn all the time and you know, making a joke out of this that you know, one small comment and people just react in the most incredible way and they are getting slanderous against each other. They are, you know, threatening each other. You know, that's, that's normal. Uh, if you don't believe me, go on YouTube, have a look at the comments. It is it's scary. You know, and actually, as a matter of fact, I never look at YouTube comments because it just upsets me. But for Christians, when we're commenting on something online, we need to be so careful because we need to remember it's not just us but it is non-believers as well that will look at that. You know, people take what they see online sometimes wrongly, sometimes too seriously. You know, I know that from my my job that sometimes uh, when I used to take tech support calls, people would say, oh, I've seen this on the internet. This problem happens all the time. Everyone has this problem. I'm like, well, now everyone. You can't say that, of course, on the phone. But people read something on the internet and they believe it's true. You know, and that happens even within churches. You know, we see and we hear comments, no doubt, saying, did you see what someone said online about someone else? Now, of course, it's not that we shouldn't be aware of issues going on in the church today. But how many times have I heard the comments, did you know about this problem in the church? Yet, rarely do I hear anyone say, you really should pray for the church. In the end, as Christians, we should pray more than we criticize. If we prayed for each other half as much as we complained about each other, the church would be a different place. We should pray for each other more than we criticize each other. Now, in all of this, does it mean that unbelievers can't make good decisions? Well, let's hope not, because what about our court systems, right? You know, we live in a, a good country, and it's creaking at the seams a little, but we live in a good country to, compared to many in this world. You know, and if there's a question of should we use civil courts, well, no. There's a time and a place, and Paul himself appealed to Caesar through civil courts. But what Paul is talking about here is about one believer versus another, and it really shouldn't be commonplace at all. It really shouldn't be needful to involve a civil court in something that should be resolved amongst Christians. And so Paul says in verse 7, Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? This is utterly a fault. You know, if that was the case for the church in Corinth, so it is the case for us too. We need to love each other, to be patient and long-suffering with each other. 
And I don't think that we can make the excuse that just because we're not starting legal proceedings that we can act how we want. This all starts in our heart, spilling into our attitude and then into our actions. So let's look at what else the Bible has to say. We read in 1 John chapter 4, If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Wow. But he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That is so direct. Basically saying you can't be hating another Christian and loving God at the same time. First Peter chapter 2 we read, For what glory is it if, when buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So this is the other side, that sometimes we are on the wrong end of a false accusation. Actually, to be clear, there is not actually a right end of false accusation that you want to be on. But if you've done wrong, the point that Peter's making here is you should take it patiently. If you've done something wrong and someone corrects you, of course, you should take it patiently. But if not, if it's a false accusation, it's pleasing to God if we do take it patiently. Not throw our toys out the pram, so to speak, and start shouting and screaming and throwing accusations back. We take it patiently. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. Turn the other cheek. You know, that doesn't mean it's a case of just rolling over and letting people do what they want to to us. But we don't start taking each other to court and the church ending up in a complete mess. Indeed, there's another challenge from Jesus himself. And we'll just read in Matthew chapter 18 from verses 21 to the end of the chapter. So a few verses here. Feel free to to turn there also, although I'll have it on the screen. Jesus, or we're reading here, um, Matthew's record. Uh, Then Peter came to him, so came to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. You know, so what Peter's asking here is, you know, can I forgive someone seven times and after that, no more forgiveness? And Jesus saying, no, in simplest terms. I was talking to Barry briefly about this earlier, and he can give a great insight into uh, the background uh, here as to what is really being said. But the intent is that we keep on forgiving. We continue reading here. Therefore, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him which owed him ten thousand talents. For as much as he had not to pay, his law commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So this guy here is in a real state. He owes way more than he can pay. So his master says to sell him, and his wife, and his children, and everything that he owns. The servant therefore fell down, and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that you owe. 
And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, because you desired me. Should not you also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, my heavenly Father, do also unto you, if you from your hearts from your hearts, forgive not every one of his brother their trespasses. This is something that is hard for us to apply to our whole lives. We must. Must. And here Jesus is saying, if you don't forgive someone who has offended you, far less than you have offended him, neither will we have his forgiveness. If we want to work on that basis of sticking to the law. But God has shown us his grace, and therefore we are to show his grace to everyone else. Milton Jones Comedian who happens to be a Christian um, jokes. He says, "Once I had a really good book on forgiveness, but I lent it to a friend and they lost it. They're not my friend anymore." But the, in seriousness, though, um, someone else, uh, a great guy called Brian Hansen, who is um, a radio show host in the U.S., he says, "Forgiveness is the way of Jesus. If you claim to follow Him and you have to forgive, or sorry, you have to forgive. Period." There is no way around this. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is the way of Jesus. If you claim to follow him, you have to forgive. Period. There is no way around this. C.S. Lewis says, well, that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. True that is. But he also says to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. you know, no matter whether someone has hurt us accidentally or intentionally, we cannot hold back forgiveness from them. The last few months I've been listening a lot to Matthew West's albums again. Great Christian musician. And I just want to share one of his songs this morning called Forgiveness. Just read the words to you. He says, it's the hardest thing to give away and the last thing on your mind today and it always goes to those who don't deserve it's the opposite of how you feel when the pain they caused is just too real it takes everything that you have just to say the word forgiveness it flies in the face of all your pride it moves away the mad inside it's always anger's own worst enemy even when the jury and the judge say you've got a right to hold a grudge is to whisper in your ear saying, set it free. Forgiveness. Show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Forgiveness. It'll clear the bitterness away. It can even set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Forgiveness. Show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Forgiveness. I want to finally set it free. 
So show me how to see what your mercy sees. Help me now to give what you gave to me. Forgiveness. You know, picking up on something that Matthew says in that song, there was a comment I heard earlier this year which really has, has lived with me. And that is bitterness is like drinking a poison expecting the other person to die. In the end, forgiveness is really hard. But it's easier than the alternative. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is really hard, but it is easier than the alternative. Because the alternative of not forgiving someone eats away at you and I. We fail to do that. So, for a church to not be at war with itself, for Christians to not be at war with themselves, one thing that we must all understand is forgiveness. So let's consider God's character, which of course is what we should all be aiming for our own character to be like. We read in Exodus chapter 34, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And this is repeated in Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. And so our character needs to match up to that. That's what we're aiming for as Christians. But we can't do it on our own, don't get me wrong. But as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, we'll bring about that change. And we read in Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And for a moment, just think about long-suffering. It doesn't sound like fun, right? No one likes suffering, especially for a long time. But the fruit of the Spirit is that we do show this. You know, that we have everything that we need from God to be able to do this. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not uh, knows not God, but God is love. And this was manifested or demonstrated or shown to us, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. He continues, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the payment in full for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And when we consider what God has done for us, which we were looking at earlier this morning, just before communion, we consider what God has done for us, we shouldn't hold back forgiving each other. I would definitely encourage you to take a look at C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity. I was uh, reading last night uh, his chapter there on forgiveness. And he makes some really great points. Some of those being that we don't have to change our minds about liking the thing that was done to us, where we feel we're wronged. We don't even have to think that person is nice or that there's anything likable or lovable about them. You don't have to stop feeling hurt all of a sudden. But we are instructed to forgive. When we consider how much God has loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. Again, 
God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. So we ought to forgive the inexcusable in each other also. Paul in verse 8 of this chapter says, No, you do wrong and defraud, and that, brethren. Now I can't help but comment here that it's amazing how people can be friends until money is involved. And there's a maybe a wise phrase, which is that before lending money to a friend, you should decide which one you need the most. But regardless of whether money is involved or not, we need to consider our own attitude. Again, Paul says here in this verse, no, you do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So Paul is saying, rather than patiently bearing with others that take from you, you are taking what you shouldn't from them. You see, the onus is always on us as Christians. That's you and I. Not the other person. Because you are not responsible for how the other person behaves. But you are responsible for how you behave. Christians should be like family to each other. But not like a dysfunctional family. And it's always a sad thing in any family when you see fights emerge. Joe Foch comments how, he sees this sometimes with families, how, you know, particularly when a will is involved, that, you know, everyone starts fighting over the cuckoo clock. Who's going to get it? And he said, really, he said, they're the ones that are making the cuckoo sounds now. And he says, that's not how the church should be. That's not how our family should be. If we are a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not how we should be, fighting over silly things. In the end, it comes to this. Imagine how you would feel as a parent if you had two sons, two children, taking each other to court. It would break your heart. That's how God must look at us when we are fighting. When he looks at us as his sons, his children, if we take each other to court. Or if we fight amongst ourselves and refuse to forgive. We refuse to be patient with each other. Brent Hansen said, I've been hurt by people. I don't forgive them because they deserve it. I forgive them because God forgave me. Again, we read in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You uh, can probably tell me and Barry share some of the same library of jokes. But I was reading recently Milton Jones. Um, he's actually a really good book called Ten Second Sermons. Uh, he makes some really profound points as well as it being very funny. But uh, he says, uh, Christians shouldn't live in fear. So turn to the person next to you and say hello. <laughs> yeah, but in seriousness, the point I want to make there is don't leave today if you need to resolve something with someone else here. We are family. We are Christian brothers and sisters. So let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us that you have made a way for us to be right with you. Oh Lord, and when we think how that you know our every thought, our every action, every intent of our hearts that we've ever had. Oh Lord, you have still forgiven us that you didn't hold back on sending your son to die. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your incredible mercy. Lord, help us to not take that for granted. And Lord, may that change us. May it make us more like you. The Lord, we will respond to your grace and your mercy by showing grace, mercy, the same love to those around us.
Lord, how that needs to be true to every person that we come across, Lord, whether they know you or not. But Lord, especially we pray within our church families. Lord, the wider family we have as a church, help us to love well, to pray for each other more than we criticize each other. Lord, help us to be standing firm in your word. And Lord, help us not to be accepting of compromising your word. Lord, we know that's not what you want us to do. Lord, you want us to stand for truth. But Lord, help us to love. And Lord, particularly we pray that in this town and in this country, that Christians would be seen as those that do love each other. Lord, help us and just show the love to each other that you've shown to us. And Jesus, we thank you for your great love toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.